Welcome to the show, Course Correction. Setting your life's direction and your GPS for success. Leadership, management, marketing, and strategy that works. And now, here's your host, Dr. Jeff Darville. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Darville, and with me today is John Hardy. John is an author and consultant, advisor and strategist. His career included managing his real estate development company, which specialized in building carriage homes in Canada, as well as a consumer foods company. His accounting background helped him develop flow or zero-based auditing, which helped turn around companies. As an auditor with Deloitte & Touche, he audited foreign-owned subsidiaries in Hungary and worked out of London. Today, John and I resume our discussion. We're going to talk about developing vision, obfuscation tactics in negotiation, Canadian politics and leadership, the efficient market hypothesis, as well as the game for insider trading in the stock market and reflections on the financial crisis. Please join us. The win-win presupposition basically is to say that our opening assumption is that you know, life is a win-win proposition and that the other party basically is an honest player, right? And so we, we operate under that assumption. And if you're, if you're mentally healthy, you know, psychologically healthy, it's, it, you have to be operating under that assumption. But the irony is that it's erroneous. It's, it is the almost guarantee of loss in the game. Because if, in fact, you are in a game, you're assuming the other's honest, but the majority are not, then you're the loser. And you're being set up for the loss every time. And each time they're going to come at you with a win-win proposition. But in the end, what it'll always mean is that you're delivering first. And when it comes time for them to deliver, they, they're on to the next. And that, that this basic structure within our, our DNA, our social DNA, that requires us to be this way, is the kind of the glue, the very seed of the game itself. So it, it creates this predisposition of the trooper to essentially be manipulated. And that because there's a great reluctance to let go of the supposition, we require, and because human beings are, um, you know, it's very difficult to extinguish habits with cognitive dissonance, and we keep holding on to the positive. We keep holding on to this optimistic view of the, the other human being. And the more we do that, the more we set ourselves up. And an example of that is, uh, let's say, Trump. doesn't matter how many times he would have... Uh, objectively proven to be the opposite of what he claimed to be because his followers had such a strong need for him to be that which they needed him to be it in the end it just didn't matter i follow what you're saying in terms of the presupposition of a win-win scenario is is ingrained in our social compact or our understanding of um, uh, yeah, polite society or some version of 
um, economic value exchange, quid pro quo. There should be a usefulness to um, you, what you're offering me. Um, you know, in, in most economic transactions at the store, I always tell people, you know, the, the bread that you purchase from the baker is worth more to you than the baker. And for the baker, the $2 or whatnot, $4 that they charge for the bread is worth more to them than the bread. Therefore, it's a, it's a simple win-win transaction. The same with the gasoline that you pump in your, uh, in your tank. If you believe it's, it's worth, you know, it could be worth $3 today, it could be worth $4 tomorrow, but it's always worth that amount that you're willing to pay. And then as soon as you get to a point where you're unwilling to pay that amount, it's, you, you're, you're not going to go through with that transaction. So most of our economic transactions are based on some version of a simple win-win scenario. But what you're describing is more complex transactions of negotiation. Well, well I'm, I'm, okay, but let's just say we, look, we take a look at the price mechanism, okay? And I was thinking that, uh, you know, economic theory, efficient market hypothesis, the prices reflect the best available information for all the uh, parties in the market at each point in time. And so price represents value. Yet, when uh, you, if you have any experience as a financial trader, um, particularly it's in options like commodities, options, various things like that, uh, you start to see that actually that's not the way the market works because of um, a certain way a structure within the market such that if a small group form common cause, and this is actually a perfect example, metaphor for all of this, they can then manipulate the market. So an example was that I think at one point, the biggest holders of uh, oil in the world were Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. And the price of uh, crude, it was double what it really should have been. And where did they come up with this uh, sort of idea of speculating? Came out of the Enron situation, where they saw the potential where this could be de uh, done with, um, there was, I think, um, electrical power. And so the idea being that when you have a fair market, if you have normal players, which are, let's say, what we call the troopers, the outsiders. If your population is made up of them exclusively and you had no players, the efficient market hypothesis would work. It would basically work. People would work harder. People would tend to buy better products because they were uh, pay more for products because they were better rather than because they were perceived to be better, et cetera, et cetera. But once you inter introduce the player element into it, uh, it skews the entire thing such that over time uh, you will have a completely different outcome. And what you have is this skewed distribution so that over time, a very, very small group will end up with the vast majority of the assets on the board. And that essentially what I would argue is capitalism. And that the, the stuff on the, that we're told and we're sold in school is the shell game. And it's what's used to groom the crowd because it creates the expectations, which they can rely upon to then uh, manipulate. Like an example in the market is that 
when you go into the market, the first thing you're taught is you need to have a stop loss. And a lot of you know, trading platforms don't let you trade without a stop loss. But the fact is that the stop loss is the very thing that the players on the other side are looking for. Mm. And so it is the, the only reason why they're participating is because they have these pools of stop losses, which they can target. And the only right. way they can pool the stop losses is that they make sure that everybody goes through the same trading education and therefore will place the stops in exactly the same places. Yeah, 10, 15, 20%, whatever those uh, uh, exactly. measures are. Yeah. That's, and then, that's, you know, that's behind your lines, right. yeah. you know, behind the curves, et cetera, all predict at the, you know, at the Fibonacci point. Cost, cost averaging. Know. Right. You know, they, exactly. They use, they use these, oh. these. Yeah. Which, which again, I think it's information asymmetry that you're also getting at. That in many cases, it's the insiders and the outsiders. The information asymmetry means, and I think the micro tra tra trading or the, um, where you're co locating your trading platform with computer algorithms as close as possible to the um, data centers so that you can interject your um, bid and ask prices based on the types of orders that are being placed. So you can track what orders are being placed. You're literally using the sheeple, the sheep, the, the, the yep. drones and the, 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 um, what else, what, what would you call them? The people, the, the crowd, the troopers. Yeah, the yeah. crowd, the troopers. Well, that's actually, the crowd is a good term because I think that's the most, it's the best term. Yeah. The crowd. Right. Yeah. So, so the, yeah, the, the crowd is the general market. It's the unwashed masses. It's the populace. It's the public, um, the relatively uninformed. Um, and, and I've often made the case when it comes to trading in the market, I'm not buying individual stocks because I'm assuming that they know more about these, uh, shares than I do in these stock prices. And I'd rather pay someone else, whether it's a mutual fund or not, just to trade for me. And I'll take the smaller percentages rather than trying to game the system and beat computers and, um, hedge fund managers who are going to do better. So even if it feels like you're doing better as a day trader, I'm like, I just, that, that to me is you're competing against people that have more information than you. I don't like playing that kind of game. Well, I, I, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm take, taking it a step further, and I'm saying that it's – now, what you're talking about there is arbitrage, right? The, you know, that they can get in and out inside of your transaction, right, because of they're being so close to the data center that they can get the signal and get in and out, right? That's a different thing. That's an arbitrage. I'm talking about direct misinformation where they are grooming the information that is actually being given – is uh, a bunch of suppositions, right? Theories such as efficient market hypothesis, etc., capital asset pricing model, and they are using that, those um, theories, as a way of grooming behavior, making it predictable. Because it doesn't even matter what direction it goes, so long as it's predictable. Right. And it's exactly that which they need. And that, I would say, is the principle in every one of the games, is we are being groomed to lose. And so the idea is that if there's a game, all you have to think about, if you want to be the intelligent player, is spot the game, get on the opposite side of it. They would have me do this, do the opposite. And then... You, the small player, actually can win, but only that way. It's, 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 it's because of the fact that they are committed to an action that is going to work with the 
And if you can be the 1% who's playing that opposite game, you can win. And I would suggest that every one of these individual traders who's a winner is doing exactly what I just described. It's the only way to be a consistent winner. Right. And it is reliable. It is. Yeah. It's not, it's not yeah. like it's extremely right because you're, you're, you're essentially playing the same skew. Right. So, so here's an interesting article I read recently, and, and yeah. I like your take on this because I think it kind of relates to what we're talking about. Members sure. of President Biden's cabinet are able to punt pay, paying taxes as they divest their assets to avoid conflicts of interest when they enter public service, thanks to a right. little, little no prov provision in federal law. Under Section 2634, federal elections laws allows people to soften the blow for the um, sale of assets. It's called a certificate of divestiture. In 1989, this tax provision was added by the Office of Government Ethics to help in, uh, employees of the new administration, cabinet members, defer paying capital gains when they're mm -hmm. required to sell assets as they enter public service. So here you have Fine. enter public service. You shouldn't be in a position of power within an administration where you can directly affect the share of, uh, price of the stocks that you exactly. own. Exactly. Conflict so, of interest. Itself. Conflict yeah. of interest. Exactly. So they can, so the, what they did, Jennifer, Jennifer Granholm had two certificates of divestiture, divestiture, one for shares in a variety of companies, including Apple, and one specifically for 240,520 shares in an electric car company called Proterra, where Granholm used to work according to financial disclosure documents. Um, she recently sold her Proterra stock weeks after scrutiny sparked by a presidential visit, Biden's visit to the electric car company, and um, uh, Vice President uh, Harris visited as well. So I'm looking at this going, you know, if you wanted to trade on Proterra, if you understood who's, who has stock in what company, you would anticipate the moves of that person watch them pump the stock, dump the stock, and you would participate in the same wave yourself, get in and out prior to the eventual decline of that share price after it's oh, been increased. There is a measure, there is a measure, Jeff, that does exactly that. The, um, uh, I mean, the, the experienced traders use something and it has to do with some measure, and I forget what it is, but it's a way that they can somehow identify what big players are doing in relation to a particular instrument. And, and, and an example exactly of this is one of the things that typically happens before a crash, right, is price is driven up and then it crashes down. Right. What's taking place is there's an exchange where the trading hands that the big money is handing off to the small money. They're getting out. They need to drive it up in order to get out. So they're using the press and the hype. And then it comes down. And so the thing what you want to be looking at during one of these price hikes is, are the big players participating, right? Because if they're not, then you can be actually be looking for this to happen with a very high degree of confidence. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I think something that most inexperienced traders don't realize and wouldn't want to participate in and trading on margin um, you know, you take a you know, essentially a loan, but you could short the stock on the on the reverse side too. If you see it being pumped up by the big players, you could actually play the downside if you wanted to. And I think that would be legitimately an equal way of making money. Yeah, and the, and the problem you have is timing. Yeah, because what what people okay, like it's just like the Big Short when you watch that film and everything yes. like that, or you you look at uh, who was that huge trader in nineteen twenties and he wrote a famous book. Uh, and he, he basically short, you know, faded the um, the 1929 crash 
uh, something worth. Uh, it'll come to me. He's the, he's the trader's trader. He's the most famous of all traders. And he went high and then he went broke and then he went high and went broke several times. Yeah. Total maniac. But the guy was the pure quintessential trader. And he wrote a book on this, which is still valid today. It was written in the 30s. Ah, that's and, the, and the thing was that what, what the whole thing is, yeah, it's just a pump action. Right? And that, but what, what, it, what occurred to me about this is that, let's say, when you, when you look at these kinds of things, on the first level, one could say that what this is is a means of redistributing money from the rich to the poor, you know, bringing the suckers in, fleecing them, and just, you know, taking their money. Okay. Yeah, from, from the on poor the to the rich, honestly, the, right. the money is going in that direction. <laughs> oh, exactly. It, it, flow, it flows to the rich from the poor. But, oh, but it's, it's a fraction. Just, it's a small, it's a relatively small amount. And, and your retirement income or your retirement pensions and, and these funds and your, your own retirement account, you're, you're seeing it, the, the difference might be you could still make 5%, but you're not going to make 10, or you can make six, but you're not going to make eight. And they're, they're shaving off that 2% in some ways. Oh, they're, and they're getting you every which way but Sunday. They're getting you this way, they're getting you that way. But I think there's something else that they're doing too. And that is that I think what the, when you look at the markets and you've traded them, especially on the smaller time frames, you realize what it is, it's a bubble machine. There's, it, it's blowing up a bubble, pop, goes the other way. Blowing up a bubble, pop, goes the other way. And this literally is what drives price back and forth. Because if it didn't happen, price would just stay. There would be no speculation, right? And that this entire dynamic, the capitalist system, I think, in a way, is a completely artificial dynamic. It's not about efficiency. It's not even about accumulation. I think on a deeper, deeper level, it is about, on a, on a infinite, or even on a spiritual level, it is so destabilizing to the individual. And so, you know, in that sense, I mean, everything that Marx would have written would have been correct with respect to what he was writing, which was the capitalist system. I mean, the fact I mean, that the quote that he had was that, you know, the capitalist will sell us the rope that they would that we would use to hang them with, in a sense. Exactly. You know, and then uh, like, in, although at the same time in China, the um, with the Maoists, they. Uh, would charge the family for the bullets that they used to execute the person. So one system is hardly better than the other. And right, so right. And, 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 you know, in communist Russia, they didn't have, you know, they had bread lines or whatnot. I mean, they, they could barely feed themselves. Ukrainian famine, the, um, who, who, there was a scientific, uh, not a non, an unscientific science of crop genetics. And, and um, I, uh, I'm missing the guy's name, but um, it's like a V or a P a Russian name, obviously. He was a mm -hmm. secretary of agriculture or something there, but basically decided that, that um, you know, all plants are going to grow equally. Therefore, we're going to have, uh, you know, plants. It, it, was, it was like as if communism would apply to your garden and he had weeds growing and, and other things. I mean, it was just nonsense, but it resulted in a famine. It, but, but, I, but I think there was a deeper psychological purpose there too, in the sense that what these systems are and I mean, definitely, uh, if we're looking at totalitarian systems, I mean, they're, uh, you know, they're taking it to another level of evil. Uh, it is about totally destroying the individual's sense of uh, self. I mean, when you go to Maslow's um, needs, uh, it is completely disabling the individual, making it so that ultimately... All those needs are so impoverished 
and they're reduced to such a low level and that they're just holding them that level. I mean, it's actually a, an act of like a prolonged act of sadism because it's not even about productivity. It's not about any of those things. It's gratuitous. And I would say all of these systems at the, at the very root, there is something gratuitous in what they do in relation to the oppression of the uh, oppression of the masses. It's not even, it's not even productive. It doesn't even pretend to be, whether it's capitalism or communism. It's so inefficient because as people catch on to all these systems, they just stop participating, right? Like this is what's happening in the States now. You know, and it, I mean, after this Corona thing, it'll be interesting to see what happens. The same here in Canada, because people are just fed up with the whole system. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, you know, we traveled to um, Niagara Falls and we normally would go to the Canadian side. For, for us, it's about mm -hmm. a three and a half hour uh, drive. Yep. Uh, but this time we stayed on the U.S. side, which there's a, a nice park, Goat Island, and there's a, um, a, an area there that, that is still nice, but it's not as nice as the Canadian side and everyone knows it. <laughs> and I would, yeah. and we always prefer, um, you know, just making the trip over the, the bridge there. I guess it's the, the, the peace bridge or whatever the other bridge is. Anyway, it's, it would have been nice to be able to visit that side. It's just prettier. And anyway, and, but we, we just decided not to. Yeah. The Canadian yeah, side and, and coronavirus. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely changed things. Well, I mean, okay. Uh, here's an example of coronavirus. Here we are. They Lysenkoism. Uh, Lysenkoism is what I was referring to. Sorry, the name of the Lysenkoism is that is that pseudoscience nonsense that kind of seeped into communism. So I think that the damage done by something like Lysenkoism, um, hmm. in comparison to whatever the damage done by capitalists, and it's profound. You yeah. know, at times you watch the Enron crash and the and the. Um, destruction in the wake of some of these big businesses and the, and the grasping at power and, and using and abusing people. But in many ways in, in capitalism, it's a low grade debt slavery that eats away at people where in communism at times it can spark um, violence and abuse. I mean, look at China and the Uyghurs and different groups there. It's just a, it's a, it's a much more pronounced and direct attack on certain groups of people where the middle class and the lower classes in, in a country like the United States or in France or Sweden or Canada for that matter, just get kind of ground down. There's a yeah, death by a thousand cuts, right? I, you know, the interesting thing is they think the two are coming together. Because as we're taking a look at what happened in Ontario, we're just coming out now. And we, I think the worst situation in terms of <laughs> lagging behind the rest in all of North America, we were shut down the longest, we're let out the last. And, and interestingly enough, here we have, and I sent you that article about this, that on the, on, on the one hand, we've got a premier who's on the right. I mean, a prime minister. And then we have a premier of the province who's on the, sorry, he's on the left, which is Trudeau. Ultra right. Yes. Super PC. Yeah, yeah, he's more of a left. No, I was going to say in Canada, only Trudeau could be on the right, but no. He's, oh, yeah. No, 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 no. He's definitely <laughs> left. Yeah, but he's he not was. hard left. He's just this sure. mild, innocuous left, which is yeah. very Canadian. But, but he ends up being that, that face of a bureaucrat, um, technocrat oh, yeah. kind of guy. Pleasant, nice, you know, who can, who can dislike this boy, you know, because we did, you know, with this little, now he's got a beard, so he doesn't look like a child anymore. <laughs> he's got his long hair. Fair enough. And so, you know, he just looks like, you know, like Mr. Dress Up or something like a kid playing the role. Right. Then what you have is this sort of thuggish guy, Ford, who's our premier, who's sort of almost like a, a, you know, kind of a poor man's version of Trump. You know, he's just bigger, heavier sort of blonder and dumber. You know, it's just sort of this, this whole thing that we, it's like, we got it down there. Now we're going to get our own Trump. We got it. 
And, and so you get to see that each of them from their own side messing up the situation beautifully. The PC one absolutely staying within the science because he doesn't want to make any kind of decision. He wants to listen to the science. Now, of course, nobody explains us what the hell the science is, but they keep referring to the science like in a, quotes, like a mantra, in quotes, the right? science as if it's a, a settled matter. The, we know exactly, exactly what it is. There's scientists who make decrees from on high. They tell us what the science is and we're going to follow their orders. Precisely. We, just like the church in the middle ages. And then, and then what you have is this is and this is the parts that's so similar to what happened in Russia and China, because they the, the Chinese did the same thing with the agriculture. At one point, I think they determined that the problem was with the uh, flies. So then they had to get rid of, the, I think was it the flies that they got rid of all the flies, but then they killed all the birds because they got right. rid of the flies. So right. They, yeah, they, I remember hearing something like one that. One yeah. thing or yeah. the other. Yeah. Just so stupid that it could only happen in a centralized system, right? Right. On that level. Well. We, we now have taken a page out of their book because when you take a look, for instance, what happened in Ontario, so on the other side, on the right wing, what you have is populism, a guy who basically he's just couldn't care less. He's always just trying to be popular and do what uh, his cronies like. Or whatever. Okay, so now you combine the two. So what you had is you've got the, the airport, federal airport, income, the... Uh, the, you know, the whole issue from India, coming in from India. We've got a lot of people from India. And there's entire sections near Toronto, which are absolutely dominated uh, by population from India. Mm -hmm. Indian, Pakistan, that area. Sure. Then things were basically under control in Ontario. Then in comes this thing. Then there's a variant problem. All of a sudden, the numbers are popping up. We know exactly where it was. It was at the airport. Where are the uh, incidents? in these Indian neighborhoods, totally localized. What did we do? We shut down all the restaurants. Of the entire province, shut it down because of this variant, because of these numbers, when the whole thing was localized and we could not attribute anything more than 1% or 2% to, and nobody even did the math or even presented the math to the restaurants. And the thing, what's fascinating about this then is, as crazy as it is, nobody challenges it. Right. Right in the press, even the opposition doesn't press uh, challenge it. Nobody challenges it, which makes you think, well, then what is everybody in on this now? Sure, yeah. I mean, the, the, the uniformity of thought, the groupthink that has existed would indicate some collaboration. I mean, it, it's hard to has say, to. That's, yeah, that's not being that's not the case. The fact that you get uniform march lockstep together messaging between the government and the media, and we had in the United States too, um, seems clear coordination. The, 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 the orders went out, the talking points went out, this is what the new line is, this is what we're going to follow. And um, in, in, in the United States, it tends to, it, it came back to um, Anthony Fauci, one Anthony Fauci, the head of the NIH, Absolutely. National Institutes of Health, uh, Dr. Fauci. Fauci. Yes. Fauci. Yep. And, and <laughs> I'm not sure, I mean, Canada probably has its own version of that a, a person nobody quite like oh well no we've got this odd creature the, <laughs> the, the 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 minister of health tam who again who they're all coming from the right. same um yeah that's right so but uh, but basically she would be taking her instructions from fauci 100 percent, no question about it yeah yeah and and this was something i, I wanted to add to that the mix of what we were discussing is recently yeah. some emails have come out where 
Fauci is having one conversation with certain people, scientists who challenged um, the, the, uh, some of the, the data coming out. There was an article published in Lancet um, that was retracted about um, you know, therapeutic treatments like remdesivir and hydroxychloroquine and others. And, and the, the data was actually falsified and they retracted it and they didn't have the same statement, but that happened in June. I think in, in March, Fauci received an email from a scientist who said that the, the, the nature of the, spi- of the spike proteins within the coronavirus um, you know, molecules or, or as he was analyzing it, could, probably didn't occur through the evolutionary process of transmission between animals to humans. Um, it just looked like it was too conveniently placed. Some of the, the ways that the virus was behaving was right. unusual and it would have changed more naturally if it had gone from a, a bat to a, a pangolin or some other animal in the wet market and out. But Fauci, Fauci's response is we need to talk about this, right, via email. And they seem to have had a conversation. It's not included in the email. It was via phone, voice conversation. And the scientist, a uh, couple weeks or eight weeks later, publishes an article retracting his belief that the, um, the virus was uh, manufactured through gain-of-function research and funded through the Wuhan um, Virology Lab, Institute of Virology. And uh, he, he, so he, he, he published a different article and, uh, of course, receives a $2 million grant from the NIH around the same time. Right. Coincidence, I'm sure. Exactly, the whole thing. I mean, plus the other thing was, bye. Um, but I mean, when you just, again, using common sense, you've got uh, uh, a leak in a laboratory, or rather in a, a market that happens to be right beside one of the few locations where this level of research is going on in the world. Right. I mean, it's so ridiculous to imagine that it wouldn't be coming from the lab. Why, you know, why would it come from that market? And then of course they deny it because that's their system. They would deny it, right? Whether it was intentional or unintentional, they would deny it. This, the, the system would literally generate that kind of result. And then, you know, the whole thing's kicked forward. You know, as, you know, as I think about all of this too, and the very fact that, let's say someone like Gates predicts this five years before. Right. And the fact that there was a book, I think by, what is it, Coulter, or somebody 2003 or something like that, they wrote a book and there was literally a couple of pages that described exactly this pandemic. Right. And so when you add all these things together, you're thinking, this is narrative. Yes. And then my take on this too is misdirection, which is another part of the game, right? They get us completely distracted. And in the meantime, what they bring in is the economy that they wish to bring in. They, they finish with the transition. They finish with the 5G and on and on and on. Sure. Yeah. I mean, chaos presents opportunities. Um, you know, they say that the, um, in the stock market, in the crash of whatever, 1929, you know, uh, money, fortunes are made when blood's in the street. 
when people are jumping out of buildings and killing themselves, that's where a lot of fortunes were made. A lot of the Fortune 500 companies in the uh, U.S. stock market benefited at the time. I mean, they, they, they were founded or they grew substantially during the um, Great Depression because there was opportunity. They could buy up assets on the cheap. Um, you know, honestly, I, <laughs> I think that the 2008-2009 financial crisis in the United States with um, uh, the, um, uh, you know, it was the banking crisis, but there was this particular bank. Um, hmm, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the name again. Um, it's, uh, it was, it's, it's in the the big short, um, just the name of the, the, the bank itself. Bear, Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns. Well, but it was, was the, the first one to go down. That was the, the first that got hit. Yeah. And I think there's another movie then called it, Margin. Then it was Lehman. And then it was Lehman, Lehman. Lehman Brothers was the one I was thinking of. Yeah, Lehman yeah, Brothers. Lehman was the big one when they decided. Well, then the, when they decided not to bail it out, that That's was it. the real issue. Yes, and yeah. in my mind, these these banks, they they weren't too big to fail. There wasn't anything inherent in these banks in terms of their books or their assets that wouldn't have been redistributed. Like those assets could have been yeah. bought up by other banks around the country, possibly around the world. If there was assets of value, like anything, if, if, like if AIG if, too, right. AIG. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm quite familiar with AIG and I remember seeing the, the scams they were pulling um, with the um, they, they did, um, you know, insuring against losses and they basically ran a, 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 a scam where they would insure against losses and, um, create those same losses and, and move, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars around just to generate book profits, um, you know, for themselves. Like it's, it, so these, these businesses deserved to collapse and the losses would have been um, primarily borne by the investors and the, the shareholders and the, and the um, executives of those companies. I mean, if, if you, like, I just conceptually, if a, if a bank fails, who is harmed like the in these these banks were had loans what i'm saying is if you have deposit let's let's just say for the sake of argument joe public mr joe um six pack in the united states had he, he, more um Lehman brothers if he had anything with them it would have been a um a more a mortgage through the mortgage backed securities his deposits or anything with the bank is minimal. You know, if he had a checking account somehow and he didn't, Lehman Brothers was commercial bank. They didn't even have that. So the only thing that he's, he's on the hook for is essentially is his mortgage, which has been bought and sold a dozen times already and would have been bought and sold again. And he would have continued paying his mortgage. And presumably if it was bought at pennies on the dollar, he could have paid less on his mortgage rate or that he could have, you know, there could have been an opportunity to renego renegotiate that because the bank that did buy it would have wanted, they, they would have tried to maintain the same rate, but how does that harm us as the, as the public? I don't, the, the argument that somehow we were going to be damaged by the failure of these banks never landed with me economically. I, I, I the, 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 the capital seizing up and liquidity seizing up just didn't, I didn't see it. You know, and you know, the problem is that we don't know, you know, in the sense that, because it's the same thing with GM, remember? They said that basically if your GM went down, then it would affect all the other car companies because they were all so interrelated that they had, you know, common suppliers and on and on and on. And the, the whole supply chain would have been compromised. I mean, I wonder, though, is the whole system in a way so fragile that What they're, they're doing is that their actions are 
perpetually making the system more fragile. Yeah. And the more fragile it becomes, the more they have to prop it up. But ultimately, it's, it's like giving some sort of injections to a guy with you know, terminal cancer. I mean, you just might as well just keep them going. Sure. Because yeah, you, can, you can hook him up to a respirator and you can yeah. try and make stimulate his brainwaves, but the body is just a corpse. It's, it's body's a corpse. It's never coming back. And I was thinking that there must have been a point of no return. You know, let's say that classic number when I think the GDP becomes, you know, more than 50, like the servicing of the GDP exceeds 50%. The, yeah, the national debt. Oh, no, the, GDP, the, the, the right, servicing the national, of loan yeah. of debt right. exceeds 50% of GMP, right? Right. Now, that's probably carved in stone. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's, it's just a basic it principle. Been. It should have, right? it should have been in our constitution or something in, in, about, a, in, really. a, in a block of, yeah, a block of stone somewhere. Absolutely. You know? Because but, you, you violate that you're done. Right. And the fragility of the system. I remember Nassim Talib talked about anti-fragile systems and they weren't systems that were so strong that they wouldn't break. Instead, they had a little bend to them, but the anti-fragility was more robust. It was a design idea that you could avoid the um, the uh, catastrophic collapse by building into a system some resiliency and some release valves, you know that we just didn't have. And the system is like you say, it's 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 the uh, paradigmatic um, fragile system. It's so um, shot with holes and it's so weak that it's you know even like to pump another three trillion or six trillion or seven trillion dollars in the American system. Oh, it doesn't matter anymore. Right. We, we've it just lost. doesn't matter. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, it's just noise. I mean, they, I mean, they will keep pumping it. I mean, right. it's and, not like they right. stop. And the inflation will be felt by the middle class and the lower class. Again, it's a, it's a visible tax on us when we're paying what I used to pay twenty five dollars for a large a set of steaks um, that I bought at the local Costco's used to be twenty four twenty five dollars. Now it's thirty eight dollars. And then they say there's no inflation. <laughs> That's a fifty percent increase. Easy. I know. Well, look at look. I mean, look at our our, our basically our basket, right? What is including right. your basket? I mean, it's going to be. I mean, for instance, what is your daily exp your expenses? Your expenses are gas, rent, food, right? Those right. are your things. All there isn't one of those things that doesn't have absolutely visible inflation, and yet they tell us what the inflation rate is two percent. Exactly, right? If you calculate inflation with the same metrics that were used, I believe in nineteen eighties. 78, like the 70 to yeah. 80, uh, early 80s, it would have been, it would be 15% as of today. Like our current rate of inflation would be 15%, but they have it at 2%. It's crazy. Which again, we, this is, this is the experts, the, the same way the health experts in COVID can tell you supposedly what to think about this virus. And again, I think that if we understood it better, we could have responded more efficiently and effectively in containing this virus and dealing with it appropriately. If we had, if the public had the right information and if these um, politicians were held accountable for making decisions with the proper information rather than um, the, the trust and faith of the public that we're supposed to bow down and worship them and accept what they're saying with no response, you know, no accountability. Um, the same way with these economic uh, numbers, in many cases, the, um, you know, the Department of uh, Labor Statistics and others, the economists here can, um, you know, our Treasury and our Fed, the Federal Reserve Bank, they're unaccountable and they can do what they want. And, and we're simply going to, um, you know, reap the whirlwind. You know, I, you know as, I'm, as we're talking about this, what strikes me too is that the moment you start, and again, it's part of the game, 
is obfuscation because the moment you start to get into statistics and then you start to change the basket upon which the statistics are based and the assumptions and on and on and on, you start to report, then you start to report changes in percentage. In other words, second degree, you know, like second derivative changes rather than right. first and you report it. And then you start to mix in the sentences one and the other, right? The right. whole thing becomes nonsense. And then and officially, then we throw in this idiotic conception of freedom of speech, in other words, which is the ability, the right to lie as much as you want, which was <laughs> never anticipated by anybody in the 18th century. Sure. That, you know, that any soph sophistic, moronic liar could just get up and just say whatever he wanted. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the slander and libel laws. Were supposedly in place to prevent even publications from outright lies against somebody. If it could be proven that it was a lie, yes. they would be held. They, they would be held liable. Um, that doesn't even occur anymore, at least not in the United States. I'm trying to think. I think in, in France or no, in, in the Netherlands, in, in, in Denmark, I believe there was a, um, a, a host out of a, of a show who I believe claimed that some woman um, had an affair or something. He was proven wrong, I guess, or something like that. And he's, he's lost a job possibly being um, you know, prosecuted criminally for that, what he said on television. So which, I, I suppose Denmark has some <laughs> some measures. Well, no, they probably retain some kind of. But you know, I, I was thinking, you know, uh, when we're talking about, let's say, what makes, uh, let's say, a healthy environment, right? If, if you were to, you know, like imagine uh, a, a small group of people who are expert and they all know their jobs well. I mean, this could be on a movie set, it could be soldiers, it could be uh, musicians. And you watch the way these people interact. Um, I was thinking that what there is, is uh, just a natural giving to the collective, but not the collective in some kind of idiotic communist definition. It's, it's something that connects to the collective, but in a, you know, that pulls the whole group up, you know, that's it, it, a, it's a collective work. It's, it's the, it's the, the soldiers are, are there collectively trying to survive, but more than survive, they're actually fighting for something as a group. And it's not that individually their lives matter just to them. It's like that they care about their comrades, their group, they'll risk their life to save the other one from fire. These are all things, but, 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 but the moment, let's say you try to institutionalize it, you would kill it completely. Yeah. I mean, I think um, often the, the soft institutionalization of culture represents the, the most uh, formal or informal. It's a there's a formality to it, but it's it may be on the on the border between what's formal and informal in terms of it's enforced by the group at some level. There's ostracization that takes place by members yeah. who flout the the morality or the code within that group, and, um, and and people know when they've traversed the the borders of the what's acceptable within that group. Um, but it's not something that comes down from on high necessarily. It tends to um, you know foment up from the ground. In, in the culture, it's it's a you know it's it's done through glances and jokes and um, 
yeah, the, uh, the, yeah, it's a harsh word at, at a time. I would, but I don't even know if it's from the bottom up either. I, I sense that it's something that's, you know, spiritual. And again, not in this, the way we you know, necessarily talk about the spiritual. First of all, my approach to the spiritual is that the spiritual exists behind the physical all the time. And that the physical is always an outer manifestation of the spiritual. And that there, within that, there's a whole universe, you know, leading up to the divine. But that, that when we try to look for cause and effect within the physical, we get nowhere because there is the spiritual component, which is a huge part of the cause. And so that's why when we try to legislate um, behavior, which means that we're kind of looking for it in the material, and we're always trying to motivate in the material with cost-benefit analysis and all that kind of approach, it doesn't work because there is that spiritual element, which if you take it out, like an example is Rogers, when he talks about unconditional positive regard. It's like pro-social behavior, this kind of thing. Yep. And, and, you know, his method, you know, of the Rogerian approach, which became the, you know, the standard approach, certainly in Canada, of all the social workers. And it was that, you know, active listening and uh, positive reinforcement and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Sure. And the thing was, it was badly applied. It was awful. But when you actually watched a, a video of Rogers applied, it was magic. Yeah. But yeah. I think the, the mistake that he made was that he had a gift. And the gift was somehow to convey this love to those he was um, who, who, you know, who, who he was in a therapeutic relationship with. Right. And that this love had this healing effect and he conveyed this love and it helped them to come to their own conclusions, etc. But the moment you take the word love and you substitute unconditional positive regard for love, you've literally killed the whole thing. Right. Yeah. And I think that even as you describe it, I'm thinking often the thing that makes somebody else and I, and what you're describing with Rogers is that he did have a natural gift. There was something in his personality that oh, allowed yeah, him to do that, that, that is, you can't bottle it up and sell it. You can't multi, you can't mass manufacture it. You can't create a training manual that can get everyone to be who he was. And, and this happens time and time again in many businesses. And I'm, I'm sure many institutions, um, there's the founder, uh, the author, the, the originator of the idea and they try to get everyone to follow their tune and they're singing their own tune. They're dancing to their own beat. And you can, you could create aspects of it that are um, formulaic. There, there may be parts of it that allow this business or this country to continue that shows up in the institution and the culture and the organization, the values, the strategy, the goals, the mission, the purpose, the vision that we started talking about early in our conversations. There's things that can be, tracked but each person is going to give birth to their own expression of what those things are and if you as the founder believe that that person the the employees of this business let's say or the the social workers that you're you're dealing with have to do it your way exactly as you did um you're holding them to a very subjective and bizarre standard that they they can't achieve and they're going to always aspire to something that is outside of themselves you know, I was thinking about this as you're saying. I think that we're at we're at a, we're at, at well we're at a concept that is, I mean, it's a crucial one, and, and it's it's about vision and personal. 
And when we use the word personal vision, um, interestingly enough, it's like progressive conservative in Canada. It's like an oxymoron that if your vision is personal, it's not a vision. Hmm. Is because if it's not transcendent, then ultimately all you're doing is you're subordinating others to your will. Right. And that if it is a transcendent vision, then you, the, the founder, the, the person who's the channeler of that vision, sees himself in a way as a conduit or herself right. as a conduit. And then people are like a Joan of Arc, for instance, they're a yeah. conduit and, they're, and the people who are following them are, you know, it's just like in Paul, you know, you know, to Christ through me kind of thing. Like, if, you know, you, you, you know, as I follow, you know, as right. I'm following Christ in me, you're following, let's say, me, as you follow, follow me. Yes, follow me as I follow Christ. Absolutely. Exactly. And yeah. it's that, that concept and that, that what gives Paul power is that it's not personal power. It's not moral power. It's something... I mean, moral power is part of it, but it's something that moral power coming from a materialistic point of view is not sufficient to describe well, it. Absolutely. Yeah. And what you're describing there with Paul is kind of his transition from the Pharisee to the missionary and to That's right. um, the author in some ways and, and to the letter writer and to the, um, he, he, you know, I think that his, his life was more embodied by true love for others rather than uh, attempting to persecute uh the the christian church as he did early in his life he he had such zeal for the the church as he said you know as as under the law a pharisee um as as for righteousness um flaw, faultless as to um zeal for the zeal for the lord i was a persecutor of the church i was the guy that was murdering christians for early in the church uh, you know as, as it was getting started in jerusalem after uh you know the in the early days of the um the apostle the apostolic church with uh james john and and peter in the in jerusalem and yet his transition to a follower of christ changed his entire being his entire purpose it wasn't about him following the law anymore it was about him with other people following the lawgiver and in and in it and maybe you know i was thinking about this whole concept of a christian corporation which most of the time I think is almost a laughable concept the way it seems to be, you know, applied. But I think what Christianity is really about is expressing the divine in what you do. And so to the extent that the individual is attempting to, you know, as in, you know, to, a, a, attempting to create heaven on earth in whatever form through their own individual expression then that legitimizes um, the organization. And if that doesn't take place, then there's no legitimacy whatsoever to the organization. So an example, uh, you know, a straight speculative uh, operation or uh, something that is just operating on, you know, reducing margins or on pure efficiency, etc., is absolutely antithetical um, to Christianity. It's a misuse it of resource. Yeah. And actually, it's a misuse of soul and of spirit of people investing themselves. And I think people are coming to that conclusion these days. They are. You're right. 
Yeah, I remember reading and listening to some Harvard yeah. Business Review um, yeah. podcasts, and they, they're essentially dealing with the same thing that you're dealing with. They want organizations to be um, purposeful, green organizations, sustainable organizations, doing good in the world. They want them to be diverse, inclusive, and equitable organizations that treat people of any race, gender, um, you know, background, uh, anything. They, they, you know, so, so there, there should be something more to the business than simply making a profit. Fair enough. Um, you know, I think what you're saying is true, that this is what people desire. They want to be a part of something greater than themselves. And they want to see themselves contributing to something um, that is transcendent. And I think that the, the Protestant work ethic in America um, gave rise to many businesses that seem to have some sense of purpose, although the, the failure, I think that the Christian, if, if you will, has this um, there's, there's almost an internal a paradox, let's say. There's a paradox of Christianity that says we can redeem the world, we can redeem the world in some ways, but mm -hmm. because it's sinful and it will continue to be sinful, um, it will never be fully redeemed until the end of time. And so be it. So be it. I mean, you know, I mean, I, one can also look at this, this, this world as a crucible. And therefore, we're not supposed to be here for, uh, you know, just to have a laugh. I mean, we're not supposed to suffer just gratuitously, but that we're here to somehow ascend. And without some kind of opposition, there would be no ascension. Mm -hmm. So so clearly, there has to be some kind of, uh, of room for the negative, for the less than positive. And uh, other and the other thing, too, is if everything was positive, then all we would be in was, would be in white light. Basically, there'll be no color even. We would just be in white light because there'll be no contrast at all. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that uh, in some ways, um, evil presents the opportunity for good to shine. And the, the, the shades of gray come through um, granular uh, attributes of black and white together, that gray is a blending of the black and white. And I think that Pre in any precisely. given situation, there, there is a choice to be made. And you could make a, a greater or lesser choice. You could make the right or wrong choice given what situation you're in. Some people are so afraid of black and white thinking that they, you know, they, they want to avoid on and off and binary thinking. And I'm like, I, I get that. There's nuance. And as you say, there's a full spectrum of color of this life. And that's what makes it beautiful. But, but within that spectrum, um, at any given moment, you can rise or lower your own self as you respond to the world around you, either in oh, a positive absolutely. direction or a negative direction. That's right, because the because because what defines the world comes from outside the world, and so the world then becomes the the kind of the mixing pot through which these two forces then are engaging. But the relevance is not the world itself; it's outside the world. This is essentially where the you know it's almost like the two armies meet on the battleground. the The battlefield is not the point. The the each one of these armies is in a progression. And, and this is just a node for that army. It's not going to be uh, that's the, that they spend the entire their entire careers fighting on one battlefield and that's it. It's true. Yeah, it's true. The interminable yeah, battle that just basically like a World War One battle like stands still. You're stuck in trenches because right. that's what they would have us be doing from that perspective. Right. Tell me, yeah, yeah, there needs to be a conclusion to it. Yes. What?